Lord, though we are pressed on all sides, you have not abandoned us. That you are our God. And worthy is your name to be praised. For you are holy. You have all power, all victory, and all joy and love comes from you. Father, we fall at our feet this morning. We lay everything down and say, come, Lord Jesus, fill us with your love. Fill us with your truth. Fill us with your power. Father, set us free by the power of your spirit. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. These passages from Exodus 32. Let me turn there quickly. I'm just going to read the first part, and then uh, the rest of it I'll sort of read as I go. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. This is the word of the Lord. If you would uh, join me in in prayer just one more time. Lord, uh, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray that even now you'd be uh, preparing us to be responsive to your spirit as you speak through your word this morning. May it be to us according to your word. Amen. So what I want to point out this morning, right as we begin, is that what happens at the foot of the mountain is like the, what we're seeing is God's response to sin in miniature form. We're seeing how God is going to respond to sin throughout the whole human story. We're seeing it in miniature form here at the foot of the mountain. And so what I want to do today is sort of uh, walk through these four movements in God's response to sin, to, to human sin. And we're going to see each of these play out and, and sort of uh, riff a little bit on each of them as we go along. What we're seeing, first off, is the people sinning. That's what we just saw in, in, in the passage I just read. So originally, Everett was going to preach this week, and then obviously he got sick. Which, by the way, huge thank you to John Stevenson who, who, Stevenson, who literally prepped that sermon in like an hour and a half that morning. So huge thank you to him. I know that they're live streaming this morning, but uh, yeah, such a good job. So Everett, uh, now he's, he's slated to preach in, in two weeks, and that, that'll actually work out really well. Uh, in terms of the lead into the Advent series. But what he was going to preach on was this thing called the tabernacle. The tabernacle. So essentially, Israel's worship was going to happen in a really specific way. God was going to be present with them. God's, God's 
present everywhere, but he was going to be present with Israel in a very special way. And he would not be available to them on their every beck and call. You know, he wouldn't be a domestic God, but he would be with them. He would dwell in their midst. And so what, what Israel was going to have was going to be this tent that would sort of shelter the presence of God. Or at least that's one way of thinking about it. The reality is that the, the tent was more, more protective of the people of Israel than it was of the presence of God. Um, the, the tent was made to sort of put these removes between Israel and the red-hot burning of God's presence, uh, which, which they recognized to be a, a danger to them. And so it was this way for God to dwell with them on his terms and not theirs. And leading up to this moment, uh, God has been—this is what Everett was originally going to preach on, so I'm just kind of filling you in. Uh, leading up to this moment, God has been describing to Moses what that tent is going to look like, right? So that's, that's the chapters leading up to the golden calf incident. It's a bunch of chapters about how God will dwell with his people. The golden calf incident happens. Then right after that, God, again, you know, is describing how he's going to dwell with his people. They, they start to build this tent. And so what we're seeing today is bookended by these long passages about how, how God will be with his people. The point of the golden calf incident and the point of, of what I'm going to be preaching on next week is all about God dwelling with his people on his terms, in his way, and how they, they sort of uh, deal with that. So Moses has been gone on the mountain for over a month. The people are anxious. They're restless. Where do we stand? When is God going to be with us? Aren't we supposed to be moving along to the promised land? Where's God? So they approach Aaron, who's Moses' brother, and they, they demand that Aaron make them gods, which is a fascinating moment in and of itself because the people, they don't want to be without gods, right? They, they, where, the, where the true God is rejected, false gods take his place, but regardless, we all want gods. Humans want something to worship. The question is, is not whether we worship, it's only who we worship. And so the people ask for gods. They ask for something to worship. They ask for a spiritual presence in their midst. And basically what they're asking for is a graven image. And so Aaron gives them this calf. He crafts it himself. It says that he takes like a chiseling tool and, and makes this, this calf. And it's funny, too, because later on he's going to report to Moses what happened. And he's going to say, well, all the people gave me their gold. And I put it into a fire and then out came this calf. You know, and so there's this, there's, it's, I mean, it's almost comedic if it wasn't so pathetic. That like, He's trying to cover his tracks a little bit when he actually has to, to fess up what he did. But he's the one that crafts this God, and then they're going to worship this, this God that Aaron made for them. And it's important to point out that this is a total failure of leadership. And that's not to say that we can't understand why Aaron bends, right? So the people have been suffering in the wilderness— Things have arguably been harder in the wilderness than even they were in Egypt. So we talked about how, how in Egypt, starvation probably was not a problem for them, but that was a real risk in the wilderness. Dying of thirst, not a real problem in Egypt. That's a real risk in the wilderness. So things have actually possibly been harder for Israel since they got into the wilderness. And now Moses, their big strong leader, has disappeared for 40 days. And there's this vacuum of leadership, right? What, what, what are they going to need to fill this, uh, this void? So the people are restless, they're worried, everything's kind of falling on Aaron's shoulders. 
But the challenges don't change a leader's calling. Challenges do not change what a leader is called to. A leader among God's people is called to do a lot of things, but probably top on that list is is this, seeking true worship among God's people. A leader of any kind among God's people will, will want to see true worship happen. They will want to see God held in high esteem among his people. It will be priority number one. Christian leaders, first and foremost, seek true worship. They shepherd the church toward true worship. They want to nurture a zeal for God. They want God to be highest in the lives of those who have faith. Because this is the best thing for us. So we, we at Trinity, you know, whether it's in elders or our community group leaders or our, our deacons or, or in a kind of leadership that's not a titled role, what, what we're hoping for all our leaders here at Trinity is that they would be uh, involved in the lives of others, whether mentoring, acting as a friend, to seek true worship in them, that they would truly desire to see real worship take place uh, in, the, in the hearts of, of those that we're leading. That's what Aaron should have done. It's what all of us are called to. He should have insisted on true worship he should have insisted on being with God as God commands, but instead he, he caves. So this is kind of interesting. He makes a calf. So the calf that Aaron makes, it's probably not quite accurate to say that the calf is a false god that he makes, right? So what's going on when he makes the calf, there's some confusion on this, but there's a couple reasons why I actually think it's not the first commandment that Aaron is breaking. I think it's, he's actually breaking the second commandment. So in other words, it's not that he's giving them an alternative God. He's making an image for Yahweh. So one reason I think that is that after building it, Aaron says that they are going to hold a feast to Yahweh. Well, he, he just made this calf. So are we having the feast to Yahweh or the calf? I think in Aaron, Aaron's mind, it's the same thing, Right? The other thing is, is when the people say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, um, that phrase is, is a little bit ambiguous in the original Hebrew. So Elohim can mean one God, or it can mean gods. It can be singular, or it can be plural. So I think it's very possible that the people themselves, they see the calf and they say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the idea is that, that Aaron has made an image for Yahweh, right? Another interesting thing is that there are many Im- images from the surrounding nations to Id- Israel that feature their God standing on the backs of animals. So there's one, um, I-, I think, of the God El standing on, it could be El or, or Baal, but he's standing on, on a calf. And so I-, I think what we have here is Aaron trying to pull God down off the mountain. He is trying to domesticate Yahweh, the people want gods, and he's a good priest, he's a good theologian, right? He knows that there are no other gods than Yahweh. But, he just, so instead of giving them an idol, he just finds a way for them to worship Yahweh idolatrously, right? Which, unfortunately, is something that many Christian leaders do today. Um, you know, sort of domesticating God. He wants to pull God, he wants to pull the presence of God down off the mountain. So rather than calling the people to exist for God, which is why I mean when I talk about seeking real worship, you know, calling us to exist for God. Instead of calling people to exist for God, he sort of makes God exist for them. 
He tries to domesticate Yahweh, pull him off the mountain. So the people sin. Secondly, God responds in judgment. So here's verses 7 to 10. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who you brought out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation out of you. So in other words, God sees this sort of domesticating of himself as functionally worshiping an idol, right? So worshiping Yahweh idolatrously is the same thing as worshiping a false god. And he's going to respond in judgment. So God tells Moses, leave me alone. I want to burn with anger. And then literally he's saying that he wants to destroy the people off the face of the earth. And he's going to sort of start fresh with his plans with Moses. So when we see this kind of reaction from God, I think in our culture there, there tends to be this resistance against the whole idea of sin. A resistance against the whole idea of a wrathful God. You know, the Bible is, is unapologetic about the fact that God absolutely is wrathful towards sin. So I think it, it, it matters that we have a, an accurate image of what sin really is. So I think in our culture, we tend to think that, it, that if you harm someone, that's when you do wrong. What's wrong is bringing harm to someone else. But ultimately, what a responsible adult, adult does alone or with consenting adults or, or uh, you know, uh, something that doesn't seem to, to create obvious harm, we struggle to understand how that could be quote-unquote sinful. What a person believes, for instance, inwardly, how could that be a true wrong? I think culturally we, we just struggle with this. And so this is sort of morality based on the no-harm principle. We start to think of a harmless person as a good person. But being good and being harmless are not the same thing. So no-harm morality is sort of all horizontal. We're each in our own little spheres, and we have no accountability unless our sphere sort of crosses into the sphere of someone else. So this is sort of morality with a really low ceiling. But morality is, is about way more than that. So in the scriptures, there's this horizontal element to morality, but there's also a vertical one. We don't live under a low ceiling. Our lives are participating in something cosmic. And so goodness in the scriptures is described as God's kingdom. We know what goodness is because we can look at God's rule and we can say that's what goodness looks like. But we tend to think about goodness almost like playing operation. You know, like you're good, just don't touch the edges. If you touch the edges, the buzzer goes off and you've sinned, you know. But as long as you kind of, you know, wiggle your way, don't touch the edges, but you're fine if you, as long as you don't. It's a really, really impoverished way of thinking about what it is to be virtuous, what it is to be righteous. Instead, I think a way better analogy for, for, for what the scriptures are describing, I think goodness is almost like learning a sport. Uh, that, that, that learning virtue, taking part in God's kingdom, morality itself is like taking part in a sport. So a kid whiffing at a t-ball can't do much in the way of baseball. Like there's just not that much baseball that he can take part in, Right? Now, what if over the years, 
he, he wants to really play baseball. He wants to, to be free enough that he can take part in the sport. So what's he going to do? Well, he's going to play the sport. He's going to keep on playing the sport more and more and more. If he finds that he's too inflexible, he'll find stretches to do. If he finds that he's not strong enough, he's going to develop muscles. He's going to find ways to be more competitive. And, and as he does that, as he sort of practices the goodness, the, <laughs> the morality of baseball, he will be able to take part in it. As he sort of, like, puts himself under the, the structures of the game and learns it more and more. So I think if you ask a professional baseball player what it's like to be good at the sport, he wouldn't say, well, being good at baseball is really all about not hitting the batter when you pitch. He wouldn't say being good at baseball is really all about not running straight for home from second. That's generally frowned upon. You know, it wouldn't be about that. Instead, I, I think when, when a, a professional baseball player describes what it's like to be good at baseball, he's, he would describe it as a kind of freedom. That I'm able to play this game. I'm able to play it well. This game is available to me because I have made myself able to take part in it. Morality in the scriptures is way more like that. That the kingdom of God is goodness itself. And as we learn the way of the kingdom, we become capable of taking part in it. So as we obey Jesus, we're becoming more and more and more able to take part in the kingdom of God. That's actually what, what Jesus is working in us through, the, through his grace, through the process of sanctification. He's changing us so to, uh, to, as one pastor calls it, reduce the culture shock of heaven. That's what goodness is. Sin, on the other hand, is opting out of the game. Sin is walking into the game and demanding that you decide the rules. I, I know the rules of baseball. I'm going to go in, and uh, I will run directly from second to home, right? You're, you're sort of creating the rules as you go. And, of course, what happens to a player that insists on doing that? They get thrown out. They don't get to play then. They're not free to play the game anymore because they insisted on their own rules instead of the actual rules of the game. And so they've been limited. They've been limited by making up their own rules. The response is to throw them out. That's what's happening here at the foot of Mount Sinai. God's people are opting themselves out of the covenant. And so God responds as he should, which is, if you will not play by the rules of the kingdom, then you will not be in the kingdom. Moses comes down off the mountain later on. He's holding the covenant in his hands, right? The, the, probably the Ten Commandments. He's holding two tablets. So it's probably the Ten Commandments written on both sides. Typically, when a covenant was cut between a king and, and, uh, and his people, the people would be sort of given a representative copy of the covenant, and the king would hold one for himself. And so Moses is walking down with, with two copies of the Ten Commandments, and he gets within view of the people and says that he sees everything that's happening below, and he's consumed with anger. And oftentimes we imagine this moment where he breaks the covenant, uh, breaks the tablets, as though he's sort of lost control, but really I think he's... He's demonstrating the meaning of their sin. 
He breaks the, the tablets at the foot of the mountain to say, the covenant is over. You've broken it now. Something has to be done. Essentially, what, what's happening here is that the people have broken their vows. The covenant is to God and his people what marriage is to a husband and a wife. The people have broken their vows. And so God's commitment to them suddenly changes. God's posture toward the Israelite turns from one of of devotion to wrath. They have opted out of the covenant after all he has done for them, after promising a nation to the patriarchs, after raising them up as a people right under the noses of the Egyptians, after delivering them from slavery, after inviting them to take part in the redemption of all things. They couldn't wait 40 days What we're seeing is not an inconsistency in God's character. We're seeing God's response to sin. You see sort of what this judgment looks like when Moses returns later on. The people, uh, it says, are are running, uh, how's the, broken loose, I think is how the ESV runs it, uh, you know, says it. One translation says, goes berser- going berserk. <laughs> so the, the people are, are unhinged. There's huge revelry. It's not exactly clear what the te- text is specifying, but they're utterly out of control. And so Moses identifies a group of his own people, the Levites, who stayed faithful this whole time. He puts swords in their hands and sends them out to run wild. And so there's this sort of violent response. The other thing that Moses does, he takes the golden calf and he grinds it down to powder and then pours it into the people's water supply so that they have to drink the remains of the idol. And then it becomes excrement. Like it's a statement on the, on the worth of the idol. Like, so he's making them consume the remains of the idol. And, so, and it's an interesting thing that later on in Israel's history, there was a ritual that would take place when a wife had committed adultery where she would be made to drink water mixed with a certain powder. And I think it's an echo. It's this, this totally strange ritual until you realize that it's this, an echo of this adultery of Israel at the foot of Sinai. It's this echo of them consuming the, the remains of the idol. It's a vision of the judgment of God where it's sort of like you wanted the idol So have it your way. As sinners, judgment is our destiny unless, and here's the third part, a mediator intercedes. Judgment is our destiny unless a mediator intercedes. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So there's a bit of theology that we ought to do here. So the word there at the end where it says that God relented, some have translated it God repented or God changed his mind, and that's not a totally inaccurate way of translating the word. Uh, so um, it's been sort of a sticking point for many Christians. Can God change his mind? So one thing that we have to realize is that God's nature is not straightforward. God is holy, 
transcendent. He's all these things that we talk about. And so if that's all true of God, then we should expect to be surprised sometimes by God. So we should expect things about God to challenge our systems. We worship the God of the Bible, not the God of our systems. So if the Bible is actually telling us that God changed his mind, if the meaning is really as straightforward as that, then we should adapt to God, not make God adapt to us. We want to bring all of Scripture together. The problem is, is that that probably is not what the text is saying here. But many have tried to make it say that. So there's a group called the, the, the Open Theists. Um, many of them are, are you know, I, I should expect are, are true believers in the Lord, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet they, they have this particular view of God that I think is worth addressing here because I, I think that it's error and we should avoid it entirely. So Open Theists would hold to the idea that God does not know everything. He does not know all potentialities. He only knows what has already been, what is, right? And so there's a number of possibilities out in front of God, and, and God doesn't know how it'll all play out, but he, 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 he does know what's come before, and he's a great strategist. And so when God promises things, he can still promise with some confidence because he's a great strategist, uh, and, he, and he knows everything that has been. Uh, open theists also tend to have an idea of God's relationship to the world that's very co- kind of codependent, not in like the not in the therapeutic sense, but like just codependent, that, that God in some way relies on people for possibilities. So in order for God to move, people have to afford him the chance. So for instance, they, you know, one open theist, uh, Terence Fretheim, who, who in other regards I, I really enjoy as a scholar, so I'm not, this isn't like, don't read him, you know, but it is uh, you know, be alert when you're reading him. He would argue that God, the reason God waited 400 years to rescue Israel from Egypt was because it took that long for the people to be ready. So they had to afford God the opportunity. They had to afford God the possibility. And God responds to that possibility. So they would have no problem reading this text and being like, well, it's straightforward. God just changed his mind. It's as simple as that, right? He needed Moses to step in and lower the temperature a bit and now that Moses has lowered the temperature, then God's like, thanks, man. Um, Moses basically is the guy that steps in and goes like, you mad, bro? And then God's like, oh, man, I didn't even, you know. So that's kind of the, that's, that's reductionistic. I shouldn't have gone there. But um, so a, a part of what open theists are about is, is admirable, right? Like we should always be trying to make sense of all that the biblical authors teach. And that's what open theists are trying to do. I really think many of them are, are totally sincere, but really what ends up happening is that rather than making one verse clear, they, make up, they end up making a whole bunch of other passages unclear. And we don't even have to look that far. So there's a number of passages that I, could, that I could go to, but let me just pick some from the same book. So Exodus 7, 1 through 7, God predicts everything that Pharaoh will do in response to Moses and Aaron, indicating that he's actually going to make sure it happens. Exodus eight fifteen, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened, uh, just as God predicted, indicating that God knew ahead of time. In fact, uh, upwards of four or five times does Pharaoh harden his heart, and the text makes a point of saying, just as God said it would happen. Uh, Exodus 11, God instructs Moses to warn Pharaoh of the final plague and predicts that this will finally be the plague that makes Pharaoh relent. And then he orders the people to request gold and silver from the Egyptians, not only knowing that the Egyptians will hand it over, but the text actually says the Egyptians hand it over because God gave the Israelites favor from them. God made it happen. 
Uh, one more, uh, Exodus 15, the song that the Israelites sing, it's, it's all about the rule of God, a rule that ultimately cannot be thwarted. The rule of God cannot be overthrown. His victory is not hindered by human opposition. So these are all examples from just the same book, the same book that we're in right now. It not only shows us a God who knows all things, but apparently a God who knows all things because he's writing the story in real time. He knows all things because on some level he's making it happen. It's because of texts like these that that we as the leadership of Trinity, we hold the Reformed theology. One of our distinctives as a church is, is that if you're in leadership at Trinity, you'll be someone that holds to reformed theology, meaning that you have a high view of, of God's kingship, of his sovereignty. So open theism is not a live option. Now, there's another imbalance we can make, and I should mention it just briefly. I'm going to call it hyper-Calvinism. In this view, God writes all events, and humans basically have no real part in the story. We're essentially robotic. It's a mechanistic view of how God works. And so God is not truly responsive to prayer. He only makes it look like he is. At least I think that's, that's the logical conclusion you have to arrive at. So I think we need to avoid this too. We, we can't exchange one oversimplification for another, even if overall Reformed theology is, is the way to go. So to say that God is sovereign is not to say that humans are robots, uh, which is actually a lot closer to what John Calvin actually believed. So instead, what I think is happening in passages like this is exactly what we talked about in our prayer series from a little while ago. Make no mistake, God is sovereign. History is a story that he is writing in real time. His plan will unstoppably work itself out. But within that plan, the way that God makes that plan happen is through the prayers of his people. But the prayers of God's people have been stirred into how he works. It is part of the plan. We take part in God's sovereign action when we pray. So our response to God is important. Moses was meant to plead for Israel. God knew he would, and yet that doesn't diminish the urgency and the importance and the dignity of Moses standing in the gap. So what we're seeing in Moses is is a mediator interceding for the people. And here's the fourth part. God responds in grace. So the people sin, God responds in judgment, a mediator intercedes, and God responds in grace. So to say that God is changing his mind is not enormously accurate. I think that the ESV gets it right when it says that God relents, right? Like God is right to respond in judgment to uh, the idolatry of the Israelites. He has every right to ditch the covenant, just as a spouse who is cheated on has a right at that time to leave the marriage. But instead what he does is he renews his vows. God renews his vows to his people. What we're seeing here is how God extends grace. So in the, in the story that God is writing, he will give grace to his people through a mediator. Moses stands in for Israel. God responds in grace. This is how God works. But Moses was an imperfect mediator, Moses was imperfect because he couldn't actually change people. Moses was imperfect because he couldn't cleanse anybody of sin. He couldn't etch God's law onto their hearts. He couldn't make them able to play baseball, in other words, right? He couldn't change them. He couldn't prepare them to take part. 
He couldn't unleash new life. And so in the story that God is writing, it ultimately culminates in a perfect mediator. But a mediator of the kind that we need had to be God himself. It's fitting that the one who steps in to mediate, to go between humanity and God, would be the only one great enough and perfect enough to forgive sins and change hearts. In Moses, we are seeing this shadowy glimpse of when God himself will stand in the gap. We're seeing a shadowy glimpse of when God himself will stand in for his people in the body of Jesus Christ. We're seeing a glimpse of when God himself will not just ask for mercy, he will purchase grace. We're seeing a glimpse of when God will not only hold back the wrath of God, but he will absorb it in all its fury. Jesus is the final mediator, the ultimate mediator, the only one that we we could ever possibly need. God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stands in the gap to absorb the wrath of God in his own body. I'll finish on this passage. This is written by one of the apostles of Jesus, the Apostle Paul. He's giving his people instructions on how to live in a way that will make sense of the gospel, but it's really the end of this little passage that I'm, that I'm drawing attention to. So he writes this. He says, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. He gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The story of redemption is in miniature in this passage. God's right response to sin is judgment, but he has not left us without a mediator. Jesus has stood in the gap for us. And so God relates to us now in grace as a result of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Lord, we we first thank you that you are good. Lord, we thank you that you are, are good enough to do something about it. Wrath can be a bad thing for us, but it is a good thing to know that the creator of all things cares enough about goodness to be wrathful over evil. So, Lord, we praise you for your goodness. And then on top of that, Lord, we praise you for your grace. Son of God, we thank you for for assuming our flesh, for walking our streets, for knowing our experience, for suffering the temptation of sin, for enduring bodily harm, for even experiencing with us death itself. You stood in solidarity with us in all things and yet without sin so that you could stand in the gap to announce the forgiveness of sins and new life. Lord, etch your law onto our hearts. 
Prepare us to take part in your kingdom as you intended us to do from the beginning. May we live for the glory of your name. Lord, we thank you for your grace.